This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week, I'm joined by three top colleagues from The Times, columnists Daniel Finkelstein and Oliver Cam, and senior political correspondent Lucy Fisher. In this week's show, we'll ask, can you vote for Labour but not Jeremy Corbyn? What is the point now of UKIP? And what are the risks when a politician meets, wait for it, an actual member of the public? Right then, let's get started and we begin with Oliver Cam and the question of who we are really voting for on June the 8th. Sometimes it's rational for an individual voter to make a choice that they know to be wrong. Not just intellectually untenable, but morally reprehensible. I will be doing this myself on the 8th of June by voting for a candidate of a party led in job title, if nothing else, by a man who is totally unfit for public office and whose political stances encompass positions that are variously ignorant, absurd and contemptible. I expect neither sympathy nor agreement from Redbox listeners. I'm merely urging a truth recognised by realist thinkers through the ages, from St Augustine through Machiavelli and to the great Protestant ethicist Reinhold Niebuhr. Politics is a tragic necessity in which tainted methods may be employed in the calculation of preventing greater harm. So Oliver, what, what is the greater harm of not voting for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party? Let me distinguish between the issue of voting for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, for which, as I have briefly said, there is no reputable case, and voting for an individual Labour MP who both derides what Corbyn represents and, most important for me in my decision, is determined to impede and undermine the worst policy decision of any government in my lifetime, namely exiting the European Union. All of those issues come together for me. Uh, It is patently obvious that Jeremy Corbyn is unfit for public office. Were there any possibility that he would become Prime Minister after the 8th of June, then it would be um, a public duty to oppose him. But there is no possibility of that. And it is important, it's vital that a government bent on dogmatic, reactionary and destructive policies does not get a monolith of public support. If everybody followed it, Jeremy Corbyn would become Prime Minister. 
But, uh, well, <laughs> no, that, that actually isn't, isn't the case. First, for the straightforward pragmatic reason that very few people will follow <laughs> what I'm about to do. And there are very few Labour candidates that I would support in this election. The neighbouring constituency to where I live in East London is um, uh, the Labour candidate is Diane Abbott, whom I would vote tactically to defeat. The constituency where I live in East London has a moderate MP who voted against triggering Article 50. If she hadn't done that, I would be voting Liberal Democrat in this election. Uh, Second, just supposing, per impossible, that Labour won a simple majority in the House of Commons after the 8th of June, which, as everybody listening to this programme knows, is absolutely incredible. He would not have enough support within the Parliamentary Labour Party to be Prime Minister. Um, The Parliamentary Labour Party, the more it is squeezed to a tiny core, the balmier it becomes. Uh, So there's no possibility of the catastrophic scenario that you've just painted. As far as I understand it, you're basically saying that you should vote Labour because St Augustine will with the support of Reinhold What's-His-Name. Uh, <laughs> and it was all very convincing, Oliver. But in truth, uh, if the more people who vote for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, the more support he'll have. It's what I call the Blair paradox. Tony Blair said we need a strong opposition. But the problem is, the stronger the opposition, the more likely it is that Jeremy Corbyn will, uh, or, the, or the people who support him will remain in charge of it. And if Jeremy Corbyn all the people who remain in charge of it uh, and continue to uh, be in the leadership, it'll be a weak opposition. That's the Blair paradox. And I think your vote falls right in it. Uh, to start off with, I think it's unconscionable. It's voting to uh, for a political party whose leader uh, you don't believe should be prime minister on the grounds that um, that other people aren't going to do this unconscionable thing so you can and I think that's not a that's not a reasonable uh, translation of your responsibility as a voter Um, and I also think that that it bears what I think you underestimate as a danger, which is that while the Labour Party does not form a government, and I think I'd you know, be willing to accept that it's unlikely to do that, uh, it scores a sufficiently large proportion of the vote, made up precisely of people like you and Meg Hillier, great good people for whom I've got an immense amount of respect, whose dilemma is incredibly difficult, uh, but who will sustain Corbynism and make untrue the argument, if you elect this man or keep him as leader, the Labour Party is doomed. And if you make that untrue, you'll never get rid of him. It won't be a problem for me because I'm a Tory. You'll be stuck with it. Lucy, you come in there. You've been you've been out and about on the campaign trial. You're in uh, Bristol this week. This is an argument that actually lots of Labour MPs are trying to make, isn't it? They're trying to say this isn't about Jeremy Corbyn as the leader. It's about me as your local champion, and you know, trying to draw that. Do you think voters buy that? Do you think voters can separate the local the local from the national leader? I don't think they can really, because while we may in fact be a parliamentary democracy in the public psyche. I think that politics is becoming ever more presidential and certainly we we saw that yesterday. Theresa May gave a speech on the steps of Downing Street, a 1,000 word speech in which she never mentioned the Conservatives or the Tories once. She repeatedly referred to votes for herself, her team, her local candidates in a way that I thought was actually probably uh, constitutionally uh, inappropriate. But to come back to Labour, I mean any vote for a Labour Labour candidate is really uh, just going to increase Jeremy Corbyn's mandate. It is a vote for the leader, I think, in, in this increasingly presidential um, system. And I also think there is a question about whether it's an act of bad faith, which, of course, 
such sort of tactical voting is what led to Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader in the first place. People <laughs> saying, oh, well, you know, might as well. I, I don't support him, but, you know, the person I want to support, Liz Kendall, Andy Burnham's already on the ballot. Let's give the left a chance. And that's how he ended up, uh, you know, being put to Labour members in the first place. Let me, Oliver, I agree with much that Lucy said, but let me correct you on one point. My argument is not about tactical voting. It's a sure. very specific issue about preventing uh, the government, preventing um, Theresa May from interpreting the election result as a mandate for the approach to Brexit that she is taking. And it is patently absurd, the notion that European Union member states are interfering in the election in order to secure um, advantage for Jeremy Corbyn. Patently absurd. But I do accept... Lucy's argument, and indeed Danny's, if he had couched it in a slightly des less derisive form about, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 about great ethicists, you know perfectly well who Reinhold Niebuhr is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, yeah do a I, I do no, agree with Lucy that you cannot really separate the issue of the Labour Party from its catastrophic choice uh, by a, a, a series of accidents of Jeremy Corbyn as leader, who is unfit to be a member of a democratic political party, let alone leader of it. I'm not shirking the moral abhorrence of the decision I'm taking. I'm merely saying that there, are more than one, there is more than one moral issue in this election. If Meg Hillier were to tell you... She, she is my MP, to, I should uh, say. Yes, I'm to, sorry. Uh, if Meg Hillier were to tell you directly that were she to be in that position, she would not provide confidence to Jeremy Corbyn, um, she probably would be expelled from the Labour Party. She can't actually make that statement. Because she m can't make that statement, you can't vote for her. If you decided... To, I, I understand your objections to um, Theresa May's approach to the uh, Brexit negotiations, and as it so happens, some of it, I've had some, some sympathy with it. But if you want to express your uh, disillusion with it, you can vote for the Liberal Democrats. And after all, you're closer to their position, by the way, than you are to Labour's on, on the question of whether there should be a second referendum, um, or indeed no referendum, we just cancel the whole thing, which is really of you. The, the, um, that... I would completely understand, but you can't vote by this. If you accept that by voting for Meg Hillier, you are withholding your endorsement for Theresa May. By the same token, you are granting it to Jeremy Corbyn, and therefore there are other options available to you other than to vote Labour. If it becomes true that people who broadly support the left end up saying even though they've chosen a Trotskyite as shadow chancellor who also you know was somebody who was pushed out from the GLC for being too unreliable and too left-wing for Ken Livingstone if it's true that people still decide that their Labour support is can't be changed even by that then Jeremy Corbyn's right to argue his election as leader won't damage the Labour Party because it will produce all the people who voted Labour will still go and do it. I have other options, but with this particular Labour candidate, Labour former me Labour member of Parliament, who's standing in Hackney, I have the conviction that she will oppose progress to Brexit. I don't have that conviction with the Liberal Democrats, despite their formal stated party position, because not every Liberal Democrat MP of that tiny band actually opposed triggering Article 50. My MP Meg Hillier, my former MP Meg Hillier, did so, and on that issue alone... 
I'm backing her, coupled with the fact that she is not a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. There are no clean hands in this in this in this choice in this choice for election. Um, it's like nuclear deterrence. Sometimes you need to adopt a course that is morally tainted in order to secure. Well, ironically, you're good. then supporting someone who doesn't believe in nuclear deterrence. But Oliver, I think it's interesting that you say one reason you will support Meg Hillier is because she won't give her confidence to Jeremy Corbyn and will seek to continue undermining him in Parliament. It's I'm sure she I've wouldn't say that, by the way, but she will. <laughs> well, 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 fair enough. And certainly other uh, MPs who, uh, in the Labour Party who hope to get elected are more public about their um, dissent from Jeremy Corbyn. But when I've been out on the campaign trail and in Bristol South um, earlier this week, it was interesting that people who've always voted Labour um, picked up on the internal discord. They were highly unhappy with all the fighting, people saying it's in your face. They didn't like that sort of inward-facing, navel-gazing sort of arguing that's going on in the party. And I just wonder what it can achieve with Labour continuing wrangling with itself, talking to itself. Surely it just hastens the demise. And and, and, and equally, if you look on, if you look to flip it, it by contrast, you look at the Conservative Party, the idea of Conservative MP sort of publicly criticising Theresa May, you know, would be so outlandish. They'd be out on their, out on their ass, you know, too sweet. And, and, and that's sort of how a political party should work. You need some discipline. Well, let's move on. Having declared uh, it's all over for um, Labour Party, Lucy, let's talk about why it might all be over for UKIP. Struggling for credible candidates, cash and, most importantly, a raison d'etre now that Brexit is underway, UKIP voters appear to be switching en masse to the Tories. Their votes could facilitate the previously unthinkable, cause swathes of Labour-held seats in the North to turn blue and see Theresa May reassemble the constituent parts of Margaret Thatcher's empire. It was sort of quite extraordinary the reactions to Theresa May's speech outside Down Street. Nick Clegg was quite quickly out saying she's, you know, delivered a speech that Nigel Farage could have given and the Tories think brilliant it means all those UKIP voters are going to come come back she's putting herself firmly on the side of the Brexiteers and seems to be reaping huge dividends from it that's absolutely right. I mean, the latest YouGov polling for the Times shows that UKIP is down 5%. Meanwhile, the Conservatives um, are down to 5%, sorry. Meanwhile, the Conservatives continue to rise in the polls without seeing th- that much kind of lead coming off of Labour. So um, all, all the analysis is showing so far that there's a huge proportion, around about 40%, YouGov and I think some ICM uh, data has shown, are moving over uh, to the Conservatives. Um and the really interesting thing is that there are many seats across the north where UKIP's vote dwarfs the Labour majority over the Conservatives. There's no, uh, it, it's no mistake that Theresa May launched her whole campaign in Bolton North East. That's exactly the kind of seat where if even just half of UKIP's voters go, go to the Conservatives, they'll win the seat from Labour. And you've been up close with UKIP during the campaign, and they've had a, they have had, they have been holding events. This is the, they struggled to commit news. We had the bizarre business of Paul Nuttall trying to explain why beekeepers' hats wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't fall foul of the ban on burkers. Um, and then they held a very odd press conference this week where they were talking about foreign aid, but it was delayed because broadcasters couldn't get in because they hadn't paid the bill on the room. I mean, this doesn't feel like a political force which is about to have anything like the impact this time around as it did even two years ago. I think that's absolutely right. They really did peak in um, 2015 uh, ahead of the EU referendum being called and then, of course, won. And then, of course, you know, 
put underway with the triggering of Article 50 in March. Uh, I think UKIP have long had problems with professionalism, lots of problems managing their cash flow. I mean, there was one point at the end of last year where they didn't even have a London HQ. The party was being run <laughs> from a business park in Newton Abbott. Newton Abbott. Lovely though uh, Newton Abbott is. Lovely though it it's is. It's not the centre of the political scene. But the real problem is that they they don't have a reason to exist. And as you say, they're now struggling and, and fanning out in lots of different directions. BBC bashing, trying to sort of call for the licence fee to be scrapped, although bizarrely not in any way to save viewers money, just to sort of to start some sort of subscription model. It's it's a principled uh, stance against the mandatory nature of, of having this sort of levy. And another way they're going uh, along the lines of what they call their integration agenda, which you know has picked up headlines for many of the wrong reasons, really, because it focuses so much on Islam and Muslims. Uh, and and then there's the accusation that they're going back to the sort of the core B- BMP vote. So I think they're very there's a lot of confusion at the heart of UKIP about about where they go next. Uh, Danny, I wrote uh, a week or so ago about um, UKIP and saying their campaign couldn't be more core votes if it was giving away models of spitfires and pints of warm ale to men called Nigel. It feels so just retreating to trying to even get that 4 or 5% out. There's no. What impact do you think they will have on the election? Well, I think that there will be a shift of people who voted to leave the European Union and now feel we're going to go and leave the European Union. They want to vote for a, the only party in the election that's accepted the result of the referendum and therefore they're going to or you know i mean we can argue about whether labor has or hasn't but um the uh, certainly the liberal democrats hasn't and there's an argument about all sorts of things about labor's position so i think that they it's quite natural that they're going to end up doing that and paul nuttall is certainly not nigel farage um so that movement is definitely going to happen it will be very significant the other thing that labor people think are happening is that you the sort of leave vote and ukip have sort of laundered um, people who'd always voted Labour, uh, who now who are loosened, and then now they can they're now voting Conservative, um, and so I, I think that will happen without, weirdly enough, the Conservative Party losing a huge amount of the Remain vote that it had. First of all, most Conservatives did vote Leave, but as a Conservative Remainer, I didn't, and you know I don't think um, the. Uh, for negotiations are going to end in a wonderful deal for Britain. That's why I ended up voting for Remain. Uh, I don't think it's a way of pursuing the negotiations to say uh, the EU is trying to interfere in our elections. Because and I, and I, and weirdly enough, this is extremely difficult in a general election. Um, the key bottom line of the European Union is the position that they that Brexit can't be a success, and in a general election, the Prime Minister has to argue that it is going to be a success, and so therefore that that's bound to clash. But despite all of those things, if you believe that we've, as most people do, that we had a referendum, the result of the referendum is final, we're now going to have to leave the European Union, that we need to negotiate the best possible deal that we can in these extremely difficult circumstances, which is what how Remainers see it, obviously Leavers don't see it that way, then there really isn't an alternative uh, to the to the strategy that and personality of Theresa May for doing that, in my opinion. So it's uh, there will gain votes from people who are Leavers without really losing that many from Remainers, which is why they're nearly at 50%. Uh, Oliver, it's interesting because it wasn't that long ago, even post the June referendum, there, it felt like there was an opportunity for UKIP to get into those neglected industrial parts of the North which Labour had taken for granted for a long time. And also the big test of that was Stoke and they yes. failed. What is it that's gone wrong with UKIP? Is it because the people who run it aren't very good? Is it because actually once you remove Brexit there was no other 
uh, it, it, policy that they could pursue. Because it felt like there were some challenges. There was an opportunity to challenge Labour. And all that's happened, as um, Daniel said, is that the voting UKIP in the past has been a sort of gateway drug. And now these Labour voters are going the whole hog and, and jumping in with the toys. Yes, there's a, I agree with your assessment that there was a brief window of opportunity for UKIP. A series of structural weaknesses uh, and personality weaknesses has undermined the party. I, I think I'm the only person here who's debated against Nigel Farage. I did so at the Times. I think Lucy and I have probably bowed with him on the phone a few times. <laughs> literally, first of all, <laughs> in, um, in 2013, <laughs> I think. He's, um, not even Nigel Farage's closest friends would say a grasp of policy detail is his most salient characteristic. He doesn't know very much, and his bonhomie is as skin deep as his knowledge. He was a weak <laughs> party leader, and he's given way to someone who is patently uh, uh, an inarticulate fantasist. These are f- really fundamental weaknesses when you're trying to present a, an inroad, when trying to drive and generate an inroad into uh, Labour heartlands. And the party itself is not so much a coherent entity as a grab bag of disaffected people um, uttering, uh, David Cameron got into trouble some years ago for uh, referring to UKIP as a, as a racist party. It patently is a racist party. Um, no organisation that has to declare itself non-racist uh, is <laughs> itself non-racist. If you have to keep saying it, um, then you've probably and got my, a problem. My worry, uh, going back to our previous discussion about the tenor of this election, is that the left of centre opposition is so gutted, so weak, so feeble that um, Theresa May has to tack to her right in a rather discreditable way. It's a tragedy. Uh, the, the, the point is, it's partly maths. At the last general election, <laughs> we, we all said, you know, the Liberal Democrats will do very well in the places where they're strong. You know, the, hot, the seats they hold, because the Liberal Democrats are dug in. Meanwhile, they were on 8% in the polls. Uh, the problem is, if you're on 8% in the polls, in, in some places they didn't have 8%. So they were bound to lose all of their vote from the places where they had most of it. In other words, they were going to do worse, not better, in the seats that they held. If the Conservatives are on 47%, if that's true, and, and don't forget, we, we just finished an election, you know, where we said, let's never trust the bowls again. <laughs> you know, and now we, so, you know, so, it's, but it, I can't measure it in any other way. So we've got to at least use this. But if that is true, with all the health warnings that involves, and if the Liberal Democrats are, you know, at 11%, an optimistic one of the range, um, then they can't win very many seats uh, just because every, if the Conservatives are at 48%, everywhere where they're remotely competitive, they're going to score more than 50% and no tactical voting can touch them. Uh, so from that, like last time, it seems that we should be quite wary of this kind of, you know, the Liberal Democrats are doing well where, they, you know, really well where they're strong. Well, if they are, you'd sort of see more of a, um, they wouldn't be scoring um, a, a 10%. And one of the striking things in the uh, 2015 election was that in the, in the southwest, and they said, "Oh, we've, we're dug in, and where we've got local, uh, you know, local reputation to stand on, people still like having a live there." But actually, the swing to the to the Tory party was so strong. There, there sort of becomes a point where no amount of being dug in, and I suspect that Labour MPs yes. are about to find out this as well. No amount of being dug in locally will hold back this Completely. sort of tidal wave. I, I just always remember in 1979 election. I mean, this is all sound bizarre, but Oliver will remember this too. John Pardo losing his seat in North Cornwall, and I and I and I he was the one of the most you know he'd run for the leadership of the party. He was one of their best MPs in many ways, and um, you know he, he and, was he was. 
I, I think Dennis Healy, uh, who had to and negotiate he, with him in the Lib Lab Pact, said uh, John Pardo uh, was like Dennis Healy, but without any of the redeeming characteristics. Well, okay. he was rebarbative and unpleasant. Okay, well, uh, I didn't say I didn't say he wasn't. I just said he was one of the best MPs. Um, <laughs> and um, the, uh, these things are all relative. And because um, he didn't have very many MPs, and they all were quite eccentric at that point. And they did have an improvement in quality later when they got. But they might gain. You know, if they do gain. Kingston and they do gain Serbs and they will gain stronger MPs like Vince Cable and Ed Davey and that will help them. So they, w- I think they will emerge out of this election somewhat stronger but nowhere near as strong as people have imagined. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk Well no doubt we'll come back to the Lib Dems and UKIP in the coming weeks. There's been one recurring complaint this week. It's been the election is a bit boring, too stage-managed, with politicians kept away from voters. But what are they afraid of? Here is Daniel Finkelstein on why he thinks party leaders are right to hide away. Can anyone recall a spontaneous encounter between a politician and a voter that made the news and actually helped the politician concerned? Every single one we recall, we remember only because it was a disaster. Since you can't meet every voter anyway, campaigns should be disciplined. Convey a message through the media and on television, including spontaneity, if that's part of the discipline strategy, and not worry too much if we in the media complain. Well, first of all, Danny, I love the idea of you having some carefully stage-managed spontaneity. Yes, How people do. <laughs> people have that the whole time. Um, and it was said, in fact, that Tony Blair even organised some of that at the beginning of his uh, campaign in 2005 so that uh, people would feel that anger was being expressed to him and wouldn't feel they had to do that in the ballot box. hide an actor to come and shout. But what I'm really saying is that the idea that the politicians are actually either going to do one of two things. One, during the campaign, meet enough voters that they're going to sway the election result due to the number of voters they've met. Obviously, that isn't true. Or secondly, gather in any meaningful way the views of people, right, by somebody doing what they did to Tim Farron, shouting at him in a, um, a shopping centre. Um, the uh, the Since neither of those things are true, the most important thing you can do in the election, and indeed I would say the most responsible things you can do in the election are, one, in a disciplined way, convey your message, and second, in a scientific way, gather what people really think. Both of those are your responsibility. I'm not arguing that politicians shouldn't engage with the election, uh, but the idea that the only way that you can do that uh, is by spontaneous meetings. Well, the spontaneity may be part of your strategy. I know Paddy Ashdown, you know, liked to be shown jumping over walls to show show he was vigorous. Um, And I, uh, John Major liked to be standing on a soapbox, which was partly... uh, you know, because he sort of thought he was displayed well in that way, and partly because it's quite often difficult to get party staff to get the leader not to do what they've always done in elections and remember that they're actually the leader of the party. Um, so I, I um, have the view. You know, let's take uh, finally one thing, which is the the repetition of the song "Strong and Stable" point. Well, in the Times, we had a poll uh, this week, and YouGov said, uh, what phrases can you recall from the campaign? And only 15%, which is huge, by the way, I was incredibly impressed by how many that was, recalled the phrase strong and stable. But it does mean she's got 85% of the electorate to go, and there's a lot of repetition ahead of us. <laughs> well, brace ourselves. Well, look, you mentioned Tim Farron and his encounter, so let's just have a quick listen to what happened when uh, a man called Malcolm Baker confronted him uh, just outside Oxford. 
And you are an absolute <laughs> disgrace. How am I a disgrace, matey? Because you keep on about those that voted leave are racist. Who, you who keep said that? On, you who keep said on that? about they didn't who know what that? they were voting about. Who said that? But we do vote. Who said that? Then? We did know. Who said that? Because your your government. That? Loads of my mates voted leave. I don't yeah. think they're racist. Yes, you do. So Lucy, what was interesting about the Tim Farron thing was, and that, I think the even the Lib Dems are pleased was he at least got to got on the sort of news and on the social media shouting at someone that he was a Remainer and sort of hoping mm-hmm. that that will sort of chime with with Remainers who maybe, like you said, aren't familiar with Tim Farron and where his party is on this. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm surprised in a way, Danny, if you thought that he came out badly uh, from that because I thought he kept his cool. I thought the voter seemed incredibly aggressive, was barracking him, didn't give him a chance to speak. The voter looked mad and, and, and he sort of stood his ground and, and made his point, you know, he believes that Brexit will make that voter's children and grandchildren poorer. Um, and at the end, he made that. He also said, you know, you wouldn't see Theresa May doing this. So I think it probably does depend on the candidate. You know, the Maybot, uh, as we know, is not particularly <laughs> quick-witted. Um, she has no skills of improvisation. So it's certainly in her interest not to meet voters. But Boris is a natural. You know, Farage, you know, revels in, in meeting people, talking to them, having a pint, having a fag. Clegg was quite a star. I think Farron's OK. And I think Jeremy Corbyn's quite good at sort of being authentic, walking down the street and talking to just normal people. Um, but but in terms of, of what you say, whether it's sort of it's good for collecting data, probably not and conveying the message. N- I agree it's probably not, but it does allow voters to get a real sense of the person. And as we've been talking about increasing presidential style politics, I sort of had a lot more respect for Tim Farron yesterday for standing there. He blushed a bit, but he stood his ground and, and he listened and then he made his point. Whether or not it does him any favours in those West Country seats it voted leave that up until now the Lib Dems didn't like to talk about their actual position on Europe is, a, is another question. Um, Oliver, we, did, we saw um, Theresa May also did a little walkabout in Cornwall this week. And was slightly harassed, not on the same level, but the uh, woman went up to her and spoke to her uh, a little bit. And she sort of came out, at one point she came out with this line where Theresa May said, well, Brexit means Brexit and we're going to make a success of it or something. And she said, well, why does Boris Johnson keep talking about selling haggis to America? And Theresa May clearly had no idea what she was talking about and couldn't really engage in any way with, in this conversation. She's not very good at it. Uh, Lucy's absolutely right. But I'm not certain it really matters. The thing thing that, uh, and again, Lucy makes a very acute point uh, with regard to Tim Farron. Um, The thing that you can't do if you're a public figure, if you're being filmed for a a snatch on um, the news or you're engaged in a broadcast discussion, you cannot afford to lose your temper. That's the thing that people remember. And very few people are articulate and angry at the same time. I thought he did pretty well. And he was quite, as, as Lucy said, he was quite quick to sort of look at the camera and turn it into a, well, you wouldn't get Theresa May doing that. He was um, quite, quite um, quick off the mark. So just in terms of other previous encounters, I mean, the most, the one that obviously sticks in the mind is Gillian uh, Duffy, with Gordon Brown, which didn't really, the actually the initial encounter went okay. It was him being caught in the car afterwards, uh, on his microphone describing it was that big bigoted woman, some bigoted woman, some bigoted yeah. woman, and so we learned something about Gordon Brown then. But what what are the other encounters that you? Well, my, you know, the pictures of John Prescott and his yeah. encounter with <laughs> the voter. <laughs> Although you know, some people do say, look, you know, um, his reaction was a natural one and um and actually it showed him as a real person so you know you can you can argue against my point that people come out as real people i suppose um i think that you know yes 
you can have events that can work for you and work against you. It's quite a risky way of running an election campaign. And the, a, a method which seeks to be disciplined in delivering your message on the whole works better. I agree it does depend a little bit on who you are. I agree with that. And, and I have to say, as a reporter, I, I, um, there have been a lot of complaints about the control and controlled nature of this campaign. doesn't strike me as any different to David Cameron's campaign and, and Ed Miliband's, where you had aides trying to sort of cordon off reporters in car parks and, you know... A really, really important thing is the voters don't either notice or care if the political editor of the Observer is stuck in a car park. They just don't. <laughs> and, and therefore, and one of the things about these encounters is, you know, we just think they matter, you know, that we think that where the handling of the press and everything, it all works, it all more important than it is. And actually, one of the things that was shocking about Trump's election was how, was that, how little that mattered and how long it's taken for the mainstream American press who are on to, of course, correct point about Donald Trump in general and his character and the facts that he produces which are wrong to understand that element of Trump's appeal. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you for listening. As ever, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device. Sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk uh, and also send us your questions, redbox at thetimes.co.uk and we'll try and answer them next week. But for now, from Daniel Finkstein, Oliver Cam, Lucy Fisher and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 